Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Indigenous Peoples Day. This is part one in a series that we're going to be doing on Indigenous Peoples Day. Monday, October 10th, 2022 is Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's a holiday in the United States that celebrates and honors Native American peoples and commemorates their histories and cultures. We start this short series by taking a glimpse into Christopher Columbus and his relationships with some of the Native Americans, the formation of Native American country, the violence during all of this, and then we take a little bit closer look at the story of the Navajo tribe within our country. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, today we are going to be talking about indigenous people's history here in America. And um, I know I haven't looked at the notes that you guys have kind of put together, but I'm excited to learn more about this. Something as a side note, as you're listening to this, you're like, man, I just wish someone would make a podcast about indigenous history. Kind of like Black history for white people, but indigenous history, you should reach out to us and let us know that you want to do that. It might be something we would want to help with. Audio wink if you want to email us. Audio wink. Find the email in the show notes. Reach out. We'd love to help produce something like that. But Mm -hmm. Garen, take us away. What are we going to be talking about? I know we're going to be, we're going to have a couple episodes. So let's, let's dive in. Yeah. We are recording this as Indigenous Peoples Day is coming up. And then also November is Native American History Month or Native American Heritage Month. And so with those in the near future, we wanted to do a series here. It's going to be, I think, a four-part series on indigenous history. And obviously, we cannot cover all the history in that time. So this is going to be kind of a brief survey. But as Brad said, if you want to get into more, you can write us and maybe produce more. But then also, I wanted to recommend a resource that is a really good resource if you want to dive in more. And that is Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. I think the the thing that I like so much and appreciate so much about this book is that it gives you the perspective of indigenous people. So you're not just reading a white people recording of indigenous history, but Dee Brown has done a really good job compiling original sources, which oftentimes are actually tricky to find because a lot of indigenous history was oral and indigenous people didn't have access to newspapers or the types of court filings or the types of places where often history is recorded, they didn't have access to. And so Dee has done a really good job bringing together a lot of 
indigenous perspective and it's a, a treasure trove. Great. So we, we draw on that heavily and recommend it for those who want to dig deeper. Yeah, we'll put the link for it in the show notes. Yeah. I also just want to take a minute to welcome listeners, both those who have come to this show recently. We want to just take a minute to welcome you and say we are glad you're here. And also because this is off our normal beat, like usually we talk about black history, but here we're talking about indigenous history. I assume that some people will find the show through this series. And so for those of you, we just want to welcome you. And first of all, just invite you to listen to more once you're done with this series. But then also want to give you an idea of who we are and our perspective on history. Just to say, we are not here just to convey facts, historical information to you. Our goal is to engage your heart and that you would learn to love your neighbors today. And we think that having an accurate understanding of the past is essential and helpful in loving and empathizing with your black, brown, and indigenous neighbors today. And so that's what we invite you into. When you say neighbors, you're not, are you, I mean, you're probably meaning physical next door neighbors where you live, but also what are you? Just anyone that? you interact with. Yeah, I'm using it really broadly. So I'm going to start out with a quote from D. Brown, who I mentioned earlier, as he talks about laying aside stereotypes. He says, perhaps those who read this, like his book, will have a clear understanding of what the American Indian is by knowing what he was. They may be surprised to hear words of gentle reasonableness coming from the mouths of Indians stereotyped in the American myth as ruthless savages. And that is what... I think the the experience of reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, what just comes through so strongly, is just the reasonableness and the relatableness, the relatability of the indigenous people whose words you're reading. And it is in such a stark contrast to the typical stereotypes and stories of Native Americans as portrayed by Hollywood and just in our culture. Hmm. And so I just want to prepare you for that so that you notice it as we are going. So it's always interesting how when we're stepping into the space of other ethnic minorities, specifically people of the African diaspora or indigenous people, that we lead with their gentleness and their their peacefulness as if that's an attribute that they need to have in order for us, us to receive them but we don't look at, we, we don't give the same energy to the savagery of American respectability and civility. The American colonization system that brutalized and terrorized and inflicted violence upon people, that those same people groups have to be received as gentle and gracious and peaceful. When, and, and essentially, like, we don't owe that. If we match the same, if we match violence with violence, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Not yeah. that we should, but I'm just saying it's always interesting. But anyway, yeah. I digress. That we don't see the savagery in the United States military, the United States government violating treaties, right. leading entire groups of indigenous Americans to reservations where a quarter of them would die in the first year because of starvation. Like right. We don't see the savagery of that, but then we accuse indigenous Americans of being savage, savage because they fought back at some point. Well, indeed, Brown says they may be surprised to hear the words of reasonableness. It's like, why would we, why would we be surprised, D. Brown? Like, why? 
But I think what's just, surprising about that? Just because <laughs> it, I think it's just in contrast to I get the it. Hollywood stereotype. Yeah, no, I get it. But that's the sad part that that is that stereotype is what is in people's minds. Mm-hmm. And I, I realize that that's what he's pointing to, but I always struggle with that type of, uh, I don't know, that language. Mm-hmm. Not putting it on him, but just overall in that people who have been oppressed have to approach conversations in a certain way. Just that we're surprised by the humanity of other humans. Right, exactly. It's like, why is that surprising that other humans are human? Like literally. And I know we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff, but I usually do this at the top of the episode, but I'm a product of the Florida education, public education system. <laughs> he be shading uh, Florida, y'all. <laughs> and Florida I, man. If, I, if I can remember everything that I learned, it, it really was like, you know, we came over here and there there were people that were living here mm-hmm. and we were kind of nice to them, but and then they turned on us. I don't have a clear, you know, uh, you know, when we're going to talk about a lot of things that I have, I'm probably, I literally have never heard of before. And I'm assuming they're really terrible stories. I'm just assuming there's like, it's basically a mass genocide of people who are living here. In, in one way, it's like, I don't, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I, I wonder what it would be like if I did know. I don't hmm. know. I, I would like right. to think my sympathy would grow as if, you know, when you empathy, hear anybody's yeah. story mm-hmm. and empathy. Yeah. So I'm like, a little kind of weary of like, I'm, I'm about to learn some things that are going to be like kind of pseudo life changing mentally for me. And I don't know. I'm just yeah. not, I'm not like excited to hear all this stuff, but I am interested in learning about it because I think it, it will, I want to grow in yeah. empathy. Yeah. And that raises a really good point. Uh, two things to say on that note is just, first of all, hard things are important because they're part of reality. And if we tune away, like, I just want to encourage you not to turn away when some of this is hard to listen to. Maybe some of it, if you have kids, might not be appropriate for kids. But if you're an adult, you need to know this history. And and one of the examples I use of that is how we have inherent compassion for war veterans. When when you hear that somebody is a, has yeah. PTSD mm-hmm. because they were a war veteran, mm-hmm. we just culturally have compassion yeah. for for those people. I mean, we want to help them, want to provide even subsidized medical care through the VA because we have compassion knowing what they've been through and that they need help as a result. And understanding the trauma that other communities have been through enlists that kind of same compassion and is going to cause it to grow in us versus the alternative, if you don't know someone's history and story, you might just dismiss Indigenous Americans as oh, they're lazy, they're, they're drunks is one of the stereotypes, and not understand what they've been through. And so we're going to take a deep and long look at what they've been through. And a lot of it is hard. And just want to forewarn you for that, but, but tell you, stay tuned and let your heart be readjusted through it. I've got one more quote before we really jump in, just about the one-sided history we have received till now. Dee Brown also says... Only occasionally was the voice of an Indian heard, and then more often than not, it was recorded by the pen of a white man. Even if he had known how to write in English, where would he have found a printer or a publisher? And so just reemphasizing that this kind of work is needed and necessary to take an intentional look at the indigenous American perspective, because it's one that we don't just stumble across if we don't take the time to pursue it. So jumping into the beginning of really we're not talking about the the pre we're talking about the the history of 
white and indigenous relations. And so we're going to start at Columbus. There's a lot of indigenous history that happened before that, but that's just beyond the scope of what we're doing here. Yeah. So Columbus comes over and describes the the Tainos who he encountered as so tractable, so peaceable are these people that I swear to your majesties, there is not in the world a better nation. They love their neighbors as themselves and their discourse is ever sweet and gentle and accompanied with a smile. And though it is true that they are naked, yet their manners are decorous and praiseworthy. So that was his initial report. Pretty, of, pretty good. Yeah, pretty positive report of the people who he first encountered in the Americas. He then proceeded to kidnap 10 of his hosts and forcibly bring them back to Europe in order to, quote, civilize them. That's it, a bit jarring. Right. Where you just, like, oh, they're really great people. I'm going to take 10 of them. Against their will. Yeah, that's... And teach them how to be great people. Yep. <laughs> The Spaniards then returned later and kidnapped hundreds of the Arawat people, these people, and shipped them to Europe to be sold as slaves. In response to Arawat resistance that understandably arose, the Spaniards destroyed whole tribes of hundreds of thousands of people. Columbus personally sold more slaves than any other person in American history. So, wow. There, there's you know, companies that sold more. But he was personally responsible for selling 500 Arawat people as slaves. He also oversaw a tribute system whereby the Arawats had to pay tribute every three months or they would have their hands severed. Oh, my gosh. So that's where the story begins. Like, we're off to a bad start. Yeah. So Squanto, who was an early leader and liaison between the Patuxic Indians and the white settlers in the Massachusetts area, helped to save the Massachusetts pilgrims who otherwise would have perished and starved in their first winter. And so again, the indigenous Americans who first were encountered by the white settlers were kind and compassionate and noble. They peacefully coexisted for a few years with those white settlers, but then there was just this continual influx of more and more white people who then demanded more and more land. The settlers dubbed this new beachhead New England, even though it already existed as part of the Patuxic Nation, and they just kind of claimed it as their own. And in 1625, some of the colonists asked Samoset to give them 12,000 additional acres of Penaquid land, and he was amused at the time because the indigenous people didn't recognize land ownership. They didn't have a category for that the same way that white settlers brought over with them. They've related to the land in a fundamentally different way. But he wanted to maintain cordiality and friendly relations, so he marked a piece of paper, and that was the first deed granting land to white colonists, but certainly would not be the last. Hmm. Within a generation, by the 1660s, the indigenous tribes were being pushed back into the wilderness further and further. The New Englanders flattered Medicom, one of the indigenous chiefs, and renamed him King Philip to try to honor him or you know, build him up. And in 1675, after a series of arrogant actions by those same colonists, King Philip reasoned that the colonists would cause the extinction of the surrounding tribes if they just were left to continue to bring in more and more people. Right. So he declared war on them. He formed an army that destroyed 12 settlements, but ultimately they were no match for English firepower, and they were conquered, and their wives and children were sold into slavery in the Indies. 
1641, William Kieft levied tribute on the Mohawks and sent soldiers to Staten Island to punish the Lenapes for offenses that had been committed not by them, but by the white settlers. The Lenapes resisted arrest, and the soldiers killed four of them. So when the Indians retaliated by killing four Dutchmen, so kind of a tit-for-tat response, you Mm -hmm. killed four of us, we'll kill four of you, Kieft ordered the massacre of two entire villages while the Indians slept. The soldiers slaughtered 160 men, women, and children and burned villages to the ground. And this is a continual theme I want to pause on because we're going to see it come up over and over again in this whole series, is that often the indigenous people would respond in a tit-for-tat way to settlers attacking them or to white soldiers attacking them. Yeah. And then that tit-for-tat response was then received like a tenfold escalation on the part of the either United States Army later on or just settler militias. Mm -hmm. And this was a continual pattern of what would happen. They would do a kind of nuclear response to any aggression on the part of the indigenous peoples. So the indigenous peoples then were left in this position of like, how do you even respond to that? If there is more power on the part of the white army, they have better weapons later on, they would have the entire... United States military, then how do you respond to infringements and aggression and being attacked? Is you can either just kind of take it and then you lose, or you can respond in a tit-for-tat way, but then you receive this tenfold escalation response. Mm -hmm. Or you can do total war, but then you're not strong enough to really win the war. And so there was like no winning solution. And we'll see people, we'll see Indian chiefs try all three approaches, but there is nothing, there was no answer really to the the system that they were subjected to. In, in y'all's opinion, like maybe t- putting the history book aside, or in, I mean, still know, knowing it's there, just for clarity reasons, like why do you think white settlers came over here and started acting like that and started kidnapping and started, you know, attacking and being violent and obviously not being super loving to them. Like, what's, what are your initial thoughts on the actual reason? I yeah. think that they were following Columbus's lead, for one. But two, I think it was just e- easy to otherize a, a people who looked different and who worshipped differently and to label them savages just like they did with people in Africa. You don't dress like us. You don't look like us. Your skin color is different from us. And we want this we want this land. This land, you know, is ours in a sense. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that some of it was basic racism, white supremacy. Yeah. A lot of it was also the financial motive. And you'll see this play out. Like your your question will be kind of answered as we go in a yeah. way because you're going to see instance after instance of it playing out. But a lot of times the hostility and the inclination to refer to indigenous people as savages grew as there was a greater and greater desire for land or a greater... As white settlers initially arrived in new places, there was more friendly relations. And then more and more settlers would would arrive, the value of land would go up, the need for more space for farming and whatever industry would grow and grow, and then the tension would increase. And then you would see that tit-for-tat tension like boiling over into hostility that would then receive like a tenfold escalatory response by the United States. And then it would just like refer to the indigenous peoples as savages in order to justify that escalated response. Well, I mean, we'll see a lot of instances of that playing out. Yeah. 
So for two more centuries after these early events, these same patterns repeated over and over again. The great nation of the Iroquois tried in vain to pursue a policy of peace, but slowly diminished until they were put in reservations or escaped to Canada. In the War of 1812, Tecumseh of the Shawnees formed a coalition of tribes to protect their Midwestern lands from invasion. He explained his reasoning for why he thought war was necessary, saying, Where today are the Pequot? Where are the Narragansett, the Mohican, the Pecaniket, and many other once powerful tribes of our people? They have vanished before the avarice and oppression of the white man. His dream of changing the tides of these arriving white settlers and settlements ended when he was killed in battle in the War of 1812. So he kind of chose that route of total war and was not strong enough to overcome. So then, over time, indigenous people were expelled from the original 13 colonies. There was the March of Tears. They were expelled from the east. The American government wanted to not just completely kill them, so they wanted to create a territory to move them to. Why didn't they just kill them? Because they got pretty close. Yeah, they they did. Was some... it basically late in the game? They're like, oh, actually, this is really bad. We can't just. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think this goes back to what we've said before. If white people want to think of themselves as good people, nobody wants to just eradicate another person. I mean, that's why there would be an impetus to call them savages to begin with, is because then you don't have to feel like such a bad person to kill them. All humans want to feel like good people, like the hero of our own story. And so if you want someone's land and there's no way to get it fair and square, you either have to, and if you do want to still feel like a good person, which you do, you either have to savagize them so that you can justify killing them or you have to come up with some other excuse or reason to take the land. And so that's what we see happening over and over. Well, and I also think that they had to romanticize their cause by painting these people in a different light. You know, they they used their religiosity and their privilege. And like you said, they don't want to see themselves in a different, in a bad light. So they had to romanticize the evil that they were doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we see this with Denton, the city that we live in, where on the square, there's that, is it a placard that talks about how Denton had all these indigenous people killed and it's a celebrated thing. Like, our great city came from slaughter. And, I mean, he went on a quest to kill all of these indigenous people in the territory so that they, they could stake their claim. And they do it based on a false premise of uh, Christianity, a false, you know, a false Christian ideology, and, again, having to romanticize their cause to make it just. In their minds, they've convinced themselves that they're they're somehow doing the Lord's work, but they're also doing the work of justice. And we see that pattern and that theme repeated even in recent times with the evangelical extreme, you know, right-wing politics. Andrew Jackson was known to the Indians as Sharp Knife for having slayed thousands of indigenous people during his military career. And in 1829, during his first address to Congress, he recommended that all indigenous peoples be removed west of the Mississippi. He said, What do you mean removed? Removed, forcibly exiled. 
He said, I suggest the propriety of setting aside an ample district west of the Mississippi to be guaranteed to the Indian tribes as long as they shall occupy it. So this was enacted in 1834 through a congressional act which said that all that part of the United States, west of the Mississippi and not within the states of Missouri and Louisiana or the territory of Arkansas, would be Indian country. According to that act, no white persons would be permitted to settle in Indian country and the military force of the United States would be used to enforce any white persons transgressing the act. So the idea of the act was, all right, we're going to exile them, but we're going to exile them to give them a whole half of the continent. And then they'll have their side and we'll have our side. It was almost like early separate but equal type ideology, which we know how that played out. And this is going to go a similar direction. So before the law could even be put into effect, which remember back in those days it took time for laws to be put into effect because you had to actually physically, using ponies or trains, you had to carry the news of the law. So before the law could even be put into effect, new settlers swept west and formed the territories of Wisconsin and Iowa. So already two new territories were formed out of what had just been called permanent Indian country. And the lawmakers in Washington, in response to that, simply shifted the border of the treaty west a couple states from the Mississippi River to the 95th Meridian. The military formed forts along the border to then enforce the separation. So checking in now, the Tainos people who Columbus had earlier described in such glowing terms 300 years have now passed since he came, and they, at this point, had been eradicated. The land that they had lived on and had built their culture upon was now being used by slave industry. The Wampanoags vanished, along with the Chesapeake's, the Chickamahanies, and the Potomacs. Scattered or reduced to remnants were the Pequots, the Nontocs, the Nanticokes, the Machapungas, the Catabas, the Chiroas, the Miamis, the Hurons, the Eries, the Mohawks, the Senecas, and the Mohegans. There was wide trail of cultural and human destruction. The, all the people groups that, or the tribes that you just said, all the tribes that you just said were eradicated? They were essentially eradicated. There were survivors, individual survivors, who fled and joined other tribes. They were reduced to just being a remnant of their people. Mm-hmm. Just, small, you know, pockets. Yep. Because so many were eradicated. The Cherokees had survived hundreds of years of white man's disease, intrusion, and whiskey, but when gold was found in their territory, clamors grew for their removal. General Winfield Scott rounded them up and put them into concentration camps, and a few hundred escaped to the Smoky Mountains and later were given a small reservation in western North Carolina that actually remains there today. We've been there. Now you're saying concentration camp. I'm sure people are like, well, the only other time I've heard that is the Holocaust. So Mm. how's... Are they similar? Are they what? What is what are the differences? So the the concentration camps and the Holocaust, you could also be called death camps because their explicit purpose was to eradicate and kill people. Right. These were not quite the same because their purpose was more to house refugees, but they were in a similar way. They were cruel, inhumane, provided poor provisions, and we'll see in a lot of the the later instances of the same thing being done. So along with the Cherokees who were moved west, one-fourth of the population dying on the way from cold and disease. Also the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, Seminoles, and Creeks lost their homeland down in the south and were moved west. 
So in the north, surviving remnants of the Shawnees, Miamis, Ottawas, Hurons, and Delawares, and many other once mighty tribes walked and traveled on horseback and wagon beyond the Mississippi, carrying shabby goods, what they could take with them, rusty farming tools, and bags of seed corn. All of them arrived as refugees. I have a quote here. It says, But scarcely had they arrived behind the permanent Indian frontier before white men began to transgress that boundary. So it's like almost as soon as the treaty was made, or literally as soon as the treaty was made, and then continuing immediately after. It's like, okay, here's what is we're calling it the permanent Indian boundary. And then as soon as that's established, it's already being transgressed. So in 1847, the U.S. forcibly annexed Mexico and lands that the Spanish invaders had taken from the indigenous peoples there. And that land from Texas to California was all west of what had been established as the permanent Indian frontier. And that was all west of this permanent Indian frontier that had been established by the 1834 Congressional Act. So here all these new lands are being brought in and just this Congressional Act that established this boundary is just being ignored and pressed in upon. So in 1848, gold was discovered in California. And so all of a sudden, white people transgressed through the Indian Territory by the thousands. And to justify this violation of the treaty, lawmakers invented the concept of manifest destiny. They decided that white people were destined by God to rule the nation, And it was a political philosophical scheme that was only opposed in a real way by the New Englanders. So the New Englanders opposed it, but conveniently they had already driven out all their indigenous people. So they were the ones who had nothing to lose by it. In 1850, so just a couple years later, although none of the Modocs, Mojaves, Paiutes, Shastas, and Yumas, or a hundred other lesser-known tribes along the Pacific coast were consulted, California became the 31st state of the Union. So without even consulting the hundreds of tribal nations that had California as their home, they just said, this is part of America now. Right. Then gold was discovered in the mountains of Colorado just a few years later. And there was another influx of white people across the 95th meridian. Then the territories of Kansas and Nebraska were organized, incorporating nearly all of the territory of the Plains tribes, which were, again, west of the boundary. So now we're in 1858. So just 20 years after the boundary was established and Minnesota became a state, its boundaries extended 100 miles beyond the 95th meridian. So within a quarter of a century of the establishment of the permanent Indian line, white people had broken through the entire length of the boundary. There was no part of the boundary that actually held. So did they? was that just a thing that everybody just assumed, hey, we're not going to follow this law? Was it, did they put anything that was like, hey, this, we're not actually obeying this anymore? Or it was like... I mean, it was like a New Year's resolution. It was like, all right, is this nice idea of, all right, we're going to justify the Trail of Tears and we're going to justify the removal of all these people from our land here in the East by pretending like we're going to give them the West. But then as soon as... But we the, but run then out they, of room and want the West. We're going to. But take I'm that saying too. they actually did make it law. They actually did make it law. So yeah, it was a congressional it, so act. It's still in law at this point. Yeah, I I don't know that it was ever revoked. It was it just, just ignored. Active. That's crazy. Well, there's that seems a lo- like treaties are also law, and there's a lot of treaties we're going to talk about that were never officially abrogated. They just weren't followed. Huh. It seems weird that they would just why they wouldn't the government just be like actually yeah we're going to take this. 
Well, you would think the route that indigenous people would have in, in modern times, we would think, well, why didn't they sue in the courts? But they weren't recognized as citizens, and so they didn't have access in those days to our courts. They didn't really have a route to contest what was happening. It was almost like this self-imposed rule that the white power put on ourselves as we were wanting to move further and further west. And then as soon as we got to that limit, it was like, no, we're just going to ignore it. So in 1858, a few renegade Navajos, and and here we're going to kind of focus in on the story of the Navajos. And and over the course of this series, we're going to spotlight a few different groups. And there was things happening all over the country, but because we can't cover all of it, we want to take a few of the significant stories to give an idea of how these dynamics, these power dynamics played out. And so we're going to look at the Navajos of 1859. And a few renegade Navajos attack U.S. citizens who entered their territory which, I mean, kind of makes sense. If you are living in that day, you hear of everything that's happened east of you, and now these people are arriving in your territory. They fought back. And the U.S. Army retaliated, not by hunting down the culprits, these particular Navajos who had, you know, attacked people, but by attacking Manuelito. Manuelito was the head chief of the Navajos, and they destroyed his hogans, his homesteads, and killed all of his livestock. So they just, again, that big response of attacking the leader and destroying everything he has. In 1860, on March 12th, the U.S. government passed a preemptive bill granting free land to settlers in the Western territories. Manuelito describes that a white agent, uh, he says, told us to live peaceably with the whites, to keep our promises. They wrote down the promises so that we would always remember them. So he was told, be peaceable, just like go along with this and we'll take care of you. Things will be fine. But for as long as anyone could remember, the Mexicans had been raiding the Navajos and capturing and enslaving their children. So then the Navajos, for a long time, had then raided the Mexicans and stolen their animals. Then when New Mexico became a United States territory, the Mexicans, by default, became U.S. citizens, but the Navajos did not become U.S. citizens. Mm. And because they were, uh, they, they didn't become citizens because they were Indians. They were thought that they couldn't be citizens. And so the Mexicans continued to raid the Navajos, taking their children, taking their things. But because the Mexicans were now U.S. citizens, when the Navajos retaliated and raided them back, it brought down the wrath of the U.S. Army upon the Navajos. So the, the soldiers attacked the Navajo, but never punished the Mexicans who stole their children. So U.S. soldiers who were stationed on a fort in Navajo territory warned the Navajos to keep their animals away from the fort. I'm not really even sure why they wanted them to keep the animals away, but they did. So there was no fencing in those days. It was just all open land. And so the Navajos couldn't really do anything to prevent their animals from straying onto the the fort area. And so one morning, as the animals strayed, the soldiers left the fort and killed all the animals. To replace those lost animals, the Navajos then, and and this is kind of that tit-for-tat response, they began raiding the fort's pastures and supply trains to try to steal back animals to replace the ones that had been killed. But then the soldiers retaliated by attacking bands of Navajos and killing the Navajos themselves. So there was all this tension that was starting to build up and boil up. And overall, Manuelito tried to maintain friendly relations, even though the soldiers had destroyed all of his animals and homes at one point. He, he tried to maintain friendly relations and, and keep the temperature down because he'd seen how things played out or heard of how things played out further east. So there was a period of peace and friendship that came 
And the Navajos started to trade with and have friendly relations with Fort Wingate. And the soldiers mostly welcomed them because they could you know, buy furs that they could then sell for a profit. So they mostly welcomed them. And over time, they started to enjoy some recreation together of watching horse races. They had these horse races. And it became something that the Navajos really looked forward to. They would occasionally race against the white soldiers. They would each, you know, there was like various races and contests. And there was betting that was placed on the races. And so on one particular day, on one of these racing days, uh, Manuelito himself was going to race. And he was like their chief. So this was a big deal. And so it was going to be the headliner race. Several other races were run first. And then a lot of bets were placed on Manuelito's race. So Manuelito had a really fast horse. His people bet on him. And as soon as the signal was given and the race began, things started out well, but right away, Manuelito swerved to the side and stopped. And it was immediately clear that the reins of his horse had been cut. So the actual horse rein had been like sabotaged by the white soldiers. And so he he lost the race because of this sabotage. But it was obvious to everyone what was happening, that the rain had been cut. And so the Navajos protested and they went to the judges and said, we need to rerun the race. That was not fair. But the judges were all white soldiers. So, I mean, you can guess how they responded. They said, no, that the race stands. And so here all the Navajos had just bet all this stuff on the race and they just lost it. The soldiers go back to the fort to claim all their prize money, all their winnings. And the Navajos protesting follow behind them. And they get to the door of the fort and one of the Navajos starts like pounding on the door and one of the soldiers shoots him and kills him. One of the white soldier chiefs who was there, Captain Nicholas Hutt, recorded what happened next. He said, The Navajos, squaws, and children ran in all directions and were shot and bayoneted. I succeeded in forming about 20 men. I then marched to the east side of the post where I saw a soldier murdering two little children and a woman. I hallooed immediately for the soldier to stop. He looked up, but did not obey my order. I ran as quick as I could, but could not get there soon enough to prevent him from killing the two innocent children and wounding severely the squaw. I ordered his belts be taken off and taken prisoner to the post. Meanwhile, the colonel had given orders to the officer of the day to have the artillery, mountain howitzers, brought out to open upon the Indians. The sergeant in charge of the mountain howitzers pretended not to understand the order given, for he considered it an unlawful order. But being cursed by the officer of the day and threatened, he had to execute the order or else get himself in trouble. The Indians scattered all over the valley below the post, attacked the post herd, wounded the Mexican herder, but did not succeed in getting any stock, also attacked the expressman some 10 miles from the post, took his horse and mailbag, and wounded him in the arm. So the soldiers just in this situation opened up fire, executing women and children, and then brought mountain howitzers, so artillery cannons, to just kill people who had just been in these friendly relations who were just upset because they were cheated. And you see kind of those elements that I said earlier of like the unfairness, the tit-for-tat response, the fact that the indigenous people didn't have a way to make things right or fair. And almost like every option they had was a bad option. 
1862, a Union army from California, led by General Carleton, who becomes kind of a major character. We're going to hear a lot of stuff from General Carleton. And they joined up with a friendly regiment led by Kit Carson. Because the Confederate army had fled and there was no one to fight, Carleton turned his attention to the local Indians. Carleton's plan was to capture or kill all the Mascalera Apaches so that he could confine the survivors to a worthless reservation, securing their mineral wealth for the American citizens. So in 1862, he sent out the following order, quote, There is to be no council with the Indians, nor any talks. The men are to be slain wherever and whenever they can be found. The women and children may be taken as prisoners, but of course they are not to be killed. So that was his order. All Indian men are to be killed on sight. Mm. Kit Carson... Mm had friends among the Indians because he used to be a trader. And when times are good and you're trading furs and everyone's making money, it's, he had friendly relations with the Indians. So he initially had sympathy, but later we'll see he would turn on the Indians. So he gave them an advanced warning here of Carlton's scheme. Under Carlton's order, a Captain James Graydon feigned friendship, pretended to be friends with some of the indigenous leaders and gave them flowers, beef, and provisions. He then returned to their camp later with men and alcohol. And he brings the alcohol as if he's going to give them almost like this present. So the men come, and then he suddenly opened fire, killing them. In the face of this violence and other acts like it, some of the chiefs of the Navajos came to Carlton asking for peace. He then informed them that peace was only going to be available if they abandoned their land, and went to a small, desolate reservation in the shadow of Fort Sumner called the Bosque Redondo. Bosque Redondo, I, I looked it up on Google Maps because I just kind of wanted to see what this place was like. And if you look at, it's in New Mexico, and there's green in the areas around, and then the Bosque Redondo is just this area of pure brown. It's just a dead, lifeless area. In the immediate area of it now, there's some farmland that's irrigated, but there was no irrigation back then. So in, that, in those days, the irrigated farmland, you got to kind of take that out. And it was just a dead brown territory. And that's where they set up this reservation. It was a lifeless place that they were trying to move the indigenous people to. So they gave them what nobody wanted anyway. Exactly. So one of the, one of the indigenous chiefs responded saying, we are worn out. We have no more heart. We have no means to live. Your troops are everywhere. Our springs and watering holes are either occupied or overlooked by your young men. You have driven us from our last and best stronghold. We have no more heart. Do with us as may seem good to you. But do not forget that we are men and braves. He's like, we have no choice like, but to submit to what you're doing. But uh, even, even as we surrender, don't dehumanize us. We are people like you. Uh, so then more of the Navajo chiefs started to surrender. The Navajo saw what Carlton did to their cousins, the 18 Navajo leaders who came and sought peace. So he told them that their promise of peace was no good because he couldn't trust their words and that the only way for them to prove their peaceful intentions would be for them to join their cousins in the Bosque Redondo. Carlton gave them until July 20th to surrender and said that if they didn't surrender by then, they'd all be treated as enemies and hunted down and killed. Carlton commanded Carson, Kit Carson, to prepare for battle against the Navajo. And then Carson resigned in protest, saying that it wasn't right. He said he signed up to fight Confederates, not Indians. 
which is just to remember, this is Union Army, mm-hmm. which we usually think of Union as the good guys. But in pretty much all the stories in the this and the upcoming episodes, the Army soldiers that we're talking about are Union. So Carson went after the food supplies of the Navajo in order to, basically, the Navajo were very mobile and they were hard to track down. So they started just going after their food supplies and trying to starve them into surrender. So while General Carlton added a bounty for Navajos, and this is an important point, there was a bounty that Carlton put on Navajo scalps. So the Navajos were aghast at the barbarity of offering a bounty for scalps. They thought it was a barbaric Spaniard custom. And that's an important point to realize is that the scalping was started by the Spanish, Dutch, French, and English colonists, all of whom made use of this practice where you offered to pay money for scalps. And it was a way for you know people to prove that they had killed them so that you would pay the bounty. Carlton offered the following order. These exact words were read to the Navajo. So put yourself in the shoes of the Navajo, and this is what you're hearing from the United States. Go to the Bosque Redondo, or we will pursue you and destroy you. We will not make peace with you on any other terms. This war shall be pursued against you if it takes years, now that we have begun, until you cease to exist or move. There can be no other talk on the subject. Kit Carson then continued his campaign and raised the earth, destroying and burning 500 peach trees that the Navajos prized and had cultivated for years and years. Mm. So then Kit Carson finally captures and forcefully carries a group of Navajos to the Bosque Redondo. And he describes this saying, I left Fort Canby with 800 and received 146 en route to Fort Sumner, making about 946 in all. Of this number, about 110 died. So just on the journey there, like the lack of food and provisions, like the merciless pace, 110 died even just arriving. Which, I mean, that doesn't just happen. Like think of what the conditions would have had to have been for that to be the case. Manuelito was still on the loose with, with, there was multiple groups of Navajos. So Manuelito's group of Navajos were still on the loose. And he parlayed and spoke with the soldier chief saying that his people wanted to settle, plant and grow crops, raise sheep as they had always done. And Captain Carey replied saying, quote, there is but one place for you and that is to go to the Bosque. To which Manuelito replied and said, why must we go to the Bosque? We have never stolen or murdered and have at all times kept peace, we promised to General Canby. He added that his people were afraid that the soldiers were gathering his people at the Bosque to shoot them down, as they had done at Fort Franklaroy three years earlier. Manuelito refused to surrender until he had a chance to speak to the Navajos who had already visited the Bosque. So Carey hand-picked some Navajos who had been there, tried to pick the ones who would give the most favorable report and they tried to convince Manuelito to bring his people, surrender, and come to the Bosque. But Manuelito was not convinced. He saw through it. And then Manuelito started to encounter some of the Navajos who escaped from the Bosque. And they said it was a wretched land. Mm. The soldiers prodded them with bayonets, herded them into adobe compounds. The soldier chiefs were always counting them, putting numbers down in the books. The soldier chiefs promised them better blankets and food, but the promises were never kept. To shelter themselves from the rain and sand, they had to dig holes in the ground because the the shelters were inadequate. 
So they covered these with mats of grass because there were no trees within 20 miles, so there was no wood. Nothing grew there. They covered their, their holes with mats of grass, and their only means of survival then was, they, they described it this way, was to live like prairie dogs in burrows. Man. They weren't given tools sufficient to plant crops, and what they did manage to plant was killed by droughts, floods, and insects. They lived on half rations, and disease killed the vulnerable. Meanwhile, General Carleton wrote back to Washington, describing the Bosque Redondo as a fine reservation. This is a quote, a fine reservation. There is no reason why they will not be the most happy and prosperous and well-provided for Indians in the United States. We can feed them cheaper than we can fight them. When it is considered what a magnificent pastoral and mineral country they have surrendered to us, a country whose value can hardly be estimated, the mere pittance in comparison, which must at once be given to support them, sinks into insignificance as a price for their natural heritage. The exodus of this whole people from the land of their fathers is not only interesting but a touching sight. They have fought us gallantly for years on years. They have defended their mountains and their stupendous canyons with a heroism which any people might be proud to emulate. But when at length they found that it was their destiny to, as it had been for that of their brethren, tribe after tribe, away back toward the rising sun, to give way to the insatiable progress of our race, they threw down their arms. And as brave men, entitled to our respect and admiration, have come to us with confidence in our magnanimity, and feeling that we are too powerful and just a people to repay that confidence with meanness or neglect, feeling that having sacrificed to us their beautiful country, their homes, the associations of their lives, the scenes rendered classic in their traditions, we will not dole them out a miser's pittance in return for what they know to be, and we know to be, a princely realm. Good grief. Oh, how fake. I know. Writing back to Washington, how noble he views himself to be as he's essentially committing genocide and stealing the land of another nation, which he himself describes as a princely realm, says that in return, we can honor them by giving them this mere pittance and then doesn't even do that in reality. And then it's almost like this happy darky narrative, like with black people, that we loved enslavement. It's the same picture being painted that, oh, the Indians, they love it here. Like we we recognize their you know, heroic acts and their their history, and we want to honor them, even though it's meager. I mean, it's like vomit. Mm-hmm. It's it. I mean, just disgusting. Mm-hmm. But trying to paint this narrative that indigenous people are satisfied with what they've rationed out to them. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's but like, this false hu- humility of oh, we know it's not enough, but we are. You know, but there are many who find this more than adequate. I mean, just sick. Yeah. It's like the, it's appealing to the conscience of white people in the West or in the East, sorry, who want the trappings of the land and don't want to feel bad about it. And he's giving them this excuse right. to, to just feel like, oh, we, we get to have our cake and eat it too. So messengers from Carlton went out to Manuelito, who had still not surrendered, and threatened that if he didn't do so by the spring, that he would be hunted down and killed. Manuelito responded, I am doing no harm to anyone. I will not leave my country. I intend to die here. If I am killed, innocent blood will be shed. 
So many Navajos began to flee the reservation of the Bosque Redondo that Carlton had to post soldiers for the entire 40-mile length of the boundary around the reservation with orders to kill any Navajo found off the reservation without a pass. When the boss crops failed again that summer, the army issued food to the Navajos, which had been condemned as unfit for soldiers to eat. The deaths began to quickly rise again, and by 1866, a quarter of those on the reservation had died of disease, or really had been killed by disease. It was not a circumstantial act. It was like something that was put on them deliberately. After Carlton changed assignments, the new superintendent of the reservation decided that it was too toxic for habitation. Plants couldn't grow there. The nearest firewood was 12 miles away. I said 20 earlier. The nearest firewood was 12 miles away. The water was toxic. It would only ever work as a reservation if it was guarded perpetually. So he allowed the Navajos to return to a small piece of their homeland if they would sign a treaty ceding the best parts of it and the remainder of it to white settlers. And oftentimes you'll see this, oftentimes the way treaties worked was basically do this or else. There was very little agency that indigenous right. people had in many of the treaties. So Donahagawa, the first Indian commissioner of Indian affairs, offered a good summary of how much of the history that we have covered and will cover, uh, of just like the pattern of how this history worked, of how it unfolded throughout the country. He says, although this country was once wholly inhabited by Indians, the tribes, and many of them once powerful, who occupied the countries now constituting the states east of the Mississippi have, one by one, been exterminated in their abortive attempts to stem the western march of civilization. If any tribe remonstrated against the violence of their natural and treaty rights, members of the tribe were inhumanely shot down and the whole treated as mere dogs. It is presumed that humanity dictated the original policy of the removal and concentration of the Indians in the West to save them from threatened extinction. But today, by reason of the immense augmentation of the American population and the extent of their settlements throughout the entire West covering both slopes of the Rocky Mountains, the Indian race are more seriously threatened with speedy extermination than ever before in the history of the country. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the work that we're doing, you can support us for $5 a month at patreon.com backslash Black History for White People. On our next episode, we are going to continue our series on Indigenous Peoples Day. We'll leave you with this quote from Louise Erdrich. Things which do not grow and change are dead things.